0: Hey, I'm Tamara Kendacker, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. So there's been a pretty long lull on the federal politics front, and Parliament isn't coming back until November 22nd, but on Tuesday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau finally gave us something to talk about. Inside Rideau Hall in Ottawa, he announced his new 39-person cabinet. We've talked quite a bit on the show about how the most recent election gave us more of the same, but through their cabinet choices, the Trudeau government is signaling that they are going for something different this time around.
1: There are now women at the top of the vast majority of the most significant portfolios within cabinet. So that is big. I'm thinking about defense. I'm thinking about foreign affairs, finance. Those are really the top of the pile.
0: There are new faces, some very surprising promotions, and a couple of interesting demotions that suggest the government is changing its approach to some of its priority files, like the country's defense, the climate, and Canada's place in the world. Parliamentary reporter Marika Walsh is on the show today to take us through it. You're listening to The Decibel. Hey Marika, welcome back. It's great to talk to you. Hi, Samira. Thanks so much for having me on. So lots to get into today, but let's start with the big picture. How would you describe in broad strokes what happened on Tuesday with the cabinet shuffle?
1: I would describe it as a really big reset. You know, we saw not a lot of change or almost no change from the election, and now that change is coming in the cabinet shuffle. And The prime minister has chosen to put new faces at the top of almost every file that's important to his government in terms of making good on its election promises, but also that are the real trouble spots. And in in that Mm -hmm. case, I'm thinking most about defense. The relative constant would be his economic team led by Christian Freeland, who is the finance minister and, and who has stayed in her position as deputy prime minister and finance minister
0: i want to ask you another question, and this may be really obvious, but for people who aren't like politics junkies, why does it actually matter who holds cabinet positions?
1: Who the government puts in what cabinet positions is a very strong signal, both of their priorities in this new mandate, but also in terms of how seriously they're taking issues. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, on defense, if you look at the challenges they've had and, and the crisis that the prime minister acknowledged is within the culture of the military, if they had left Harjit Sajjan there, the message would have been that they don't see this as something that needs to be fixed or addressed, and they're happy to kind of let it just kind of continue to spiral. Because they are now putting a woman in charge who they view as extremely competent, who really, they believe, rose to the challenge of the vaccines procurement in the last mandate, Um, That's Anita Anand. And actually, the prime minister called her the minister of vaccines. Mm -hmm. They're signaling that they, they mean business. And so it's one of those things where political junkies and nerds like me in Ottawa get really excited about the who's who. But for the average voter, it's really about what it means about what this government will do and what this government cares about.
0: So do these people actually have the power to decide on their own, like, what kind of policies to prioritize, which direction they want to take their portfolio in? Like, how powerful are they? Because it kind of sounds like a lot of this is about sending a message to the public.
1: I mean, depending on who you talk to in Ottawa and depending on which columnists you talk to, some will say that these ministers are puppets for the PMO, that really they don't have their own power. I think that's a bit overstated. I think when you look at, for example, what Jonathan Wilkinson was able to do in environment and climate change in the last year, despite the distraction of the pandemic, he really brought in some significant new policies. Yes, you have to get the buy-in from the prime minister's office, but that's our system of government. Certainly, some ministers have more free reign than others, Mm -hmm. and that's in large part because of their relationship with the prime minister. So I'm thinking there about Christian Freeland, who certainly is very closely connected and tied to the prime minister, but nobody doubts that she has a lot of power and influence. Another person I would think about would be Dominic LeBlanc, who is also very close with the prime minister. They're very good friends, but mm-hmm. it also, he does seem to have leeway to run things his way. There's lots of Questions about how much power and control the ministers have. And I think it comes down to what the issue is, how much the prime minister's office cares about the issue, and how involved the prime minister's office wants to be on that policy development.
0: Yeah. And just on the power of the prime minister's office, I've read analysis, uh, including from our colleague, John Ibbotson, that over the last few decades, the PMOs become more and more powerful. And I wonder if you can talk about what that actually means. Like, how has the prime minister's office become more powerful? And what does that mean for cabinet?
1: Well, what it means is that we see fewer ministers who have their own centers of power within government. And it means that there is a lot more sign off and say from the prime minister's office on the comings and goings of ministers and on you know, even who is doing interviews and who is not doing interviews and what statements are put out there. There's no mm-hmm. doubt that there is a lot of control from this government from within the prime minister's office, and it's a continuation of what we saw under Stephen Harper. I think John Ibbotson sort of ties it back to uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, so Justin Trudeau's father, and the, this kind of intensifying concentration of power I think, though, it's also come at a time where there is so much focus on the leader and where the leader is the party in so many ways. And especially in the case of Justin Trudeau, when he was elected and when the liberals formed government, it was really on his coattails. And so that alone ensures that he has Mm -hmm. a lot of say over how things are going because the political careers of most of his caucus were in large part thanks to him. I think that's changed a little bit in terms of the power dynamics within caucus, because we have increasingly heard that after six years in government, the prime minister's controversies and scandals made it more difficult to campaign. But there's lots of different factors that add into that power structure.
0: All right. So a bunch of stuff happened with this cabinet shuffle. The size of the cabinet went up from 37 to 39. 30 people are getting new jobs. You've talked about some of the changes already, but I wonder what are the new portfolios that have been created?
1: I think one of the more significant new portfolios is the one that Carolyn Bennett holds, and that is now she has sort of a sub-portfolio in health to focus on mental health Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, in response to the election campaign where the liberals were heavily criticized, for example, their handling of the opioid crisis. So that would be, I think, one of the key changes. It's also, though, notable because it's a significant emotion for Carolyn Bennett, who was the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations and now is going into an associate minister role.
0: And what have people been speculating about why Carolyn Bennett was demoted?
1: It's seen as a demotion because it is a sub-ministerial portfolio, so it's called an associate minister, and it's a hiving off of part of the health file into its own separate area. And it's not at all to underplay the critical importance of mental health, but it is a smaller profile in a smaller role than what she had at Crown Indigenous Relations, where she led a big file on really what the government has called its most important issue, which is reconciliation.
0: Is it at all maybe related to the controversy around the text message that she sent to Jody Wilson-Raybould? Certainly, um, she had some challenges in that file,
1: and there were calls for her to be removed, after she sent that disparaging text message to Jody Wilson-Raybould. So there were certainly challenges in that file. And Mark Miller, who now took over Crown Indigenous Relations, is really well-liked and is viewed as very competent and effective on this file. So I think certainly there's a few things at play. The Prime Minister did not want to talk at all on Tuesday about why he demoted people and did not want to talk at all about why he removed people.
0: So what does all of this tell us about how government was working before and what kind of lessons the Trudeau government has learned from the election?
1: I think for the first time we saw the prime minister acknowledge that addressing the crisis in the Canadian forces meant changing the leadership at the top. He has stood by Harjit Sajjan for a long time. Harjit Sajjan is politically very important to the prime minister because he's a big fundraiser for the Liberals. So there's always more things at play. But on Tuesday, the prime minister gave a clear indication that that can only take you so far. If they hadn't changed it, it would suggest that they didn't want to address what was happening in the military. Another really big change that is very notable internationally, but also, as I mentioned, to the oil patch, is Stephen Gilbo becoming the environment and climate change minister. Mm-hmm. The signal that sends is that they plan to do much more On climate change. And the Prime Minister said that again on Tuesday. He made it very clear that they plan to be more aggressive on the climate file. And they have chosen to assign that portfolio to somebody who is inflammatory in Alberta and in Saskatchewan.
0: Yeah. Tell me a bit about Stephen Gilbo. Why is he considered inflammatory? Like, I know that he's been in parliament for a couple of years and he's just been moved into this role, this very high profile role. So what does that mean and why put him there?
1: It's very interesting because Stephen Gilbo joined the Liberals in 2019. That was when he was first elected. And at the time, he made clear, for example, that he is against the Trans Mountain Pipeline that the Liberal government in its first mandate bought. And he, for example, is known for scaling the CN Tower in 2001 as a Greenpeace activist Mm -hmm. um, in protest over the Kyoto Accord and Canada's failure to act quickly to ratify it. By appointing Stephen Gilbeau, the Prime Minister put a bullseye, a target, on the climate file as one of his most important, most key issues to work on. And so that just ups the ante.
0: So that's like a a very obviously bold move and maybe a sign of the times. Exactly. Okay, so another uh, change that I wanted to talk about that stood out to me was the appointment of Melanie Jolie as Minister of Foreign Affairs. Um, Mm -hmm. Why put her in that role?
1: It's a really big promotion, It's one that surprised many Liberals. Melanie Jolie was elected in 2015. The Liberals had very high hopes for her. She stumbled out of the gate in her role as Heritage Minister and was demoted to the tourism portfolio in 2018. And ever since then, she has been slowly but surely and now very quickly Regaining the trust of the Liberals, certainly it raised eyebrows in some quarters of Ottawa, in particular because they've had so many foreign affairs ministers. This is the fifth in six years, which is a lot of turnover on a really important file. And the question now is, is how does she perform? Does she exceed expectations and do actually the low expectations that some people are setting for her actually help her in the end. Another really interesting, I mean, maybe I have, this is my bias as a woman maybe, but she has been very vocal and very open about wanting to get more women into politics and Mm -hmm. wanting to make politics more family friendly. And so for example, she's talked about how she herself is going through IVF treatments and trying to get pregnant. And so now Mm -hmm. we have, you know, a high flying foreign minister who is also trying to show how politics can be done in a way that is still amenable to a family or starting a family.
0: Yeah. I wonder, though, what is the signal about the approach that the Trudeau government's now taking towards Foreign policy. Like she said, I think that they're going to approach foreign policy with, quote, humility and audacity. And I saw like people were kind of laughing at that comment because it's unclear what that means. What does that mean? Canada <laughs> yeah. uses the word audacity. But yeah, what does this appointment tell us about their approach to foreign policy?
1: I think it only tells us that they were feeling fine to make a change. I think it's really, mm. we actually don't know a lot about their foreign policy priority. And we I guess we'll see that with the mandate letters, but it is not necessarily crystal clear, I think, for quite some time how the liberals plan to act in this area.
0: And then I'm also curious, what does this all mean for Mark Garnot?
1: That's the million dollar question. Yeah. He was the Foreign Affairs Minister. He was a leadership contestant against Justin Trudeau when Justin Trudeau won the leadership. He is a very well respected politician and former astronaut. One of the sort of Ottawa rumor mill stories is that he has been offered the post of Canadian ambassador to France. Mm-hmm. That's a similar approach that the Liberals took when they were moving Stéphane Dion and John McCallum out of cabinet in their first mandate. So it's possible that that is the case, but we don't know yet how that will play out. And I think certainly of all the changes, that one likely ruffled the most feathers and by far was the most surprising.
0: Yeah, I am really curious to see what's gonna happen with Mark Garneau. I wonder if you can talk about how rankings work in cabinet we talk about demotions and promotions but what is the significance of these kinds of moves like are we positioning people to become leaders or yeah what does that mean
1: so there's a few things there certainly there are now women at the top of the vast majority of the most significant portfolios within cabinet so that is big i'm thinking about defense i'm thinking about foreign affairs finance those are really the top of the pile And what it means, and and this actually goes back to Jolie's appointment, is that when you're looking at sort of the next steps for the liberals, the longer the prime minister is in power, the longer people are going to wonder how long he lasts. And so we've seen that the potential leadership contenders are now... I think all in very senior positions within government. So Francois-Philippe Champagne is somebody who is often talked about as a leadership contender. He is in innovation science, which is a significant economic file in which he has the power to hand out a lot of money, if he so chooses. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then, of course, Christian Freeland, she is clearly a favorite within cabinet, and she is also talked about as a leadership contender. And then Melanie Jolie also is spoken of as a leadership contender. And now she is in foreign affairs, which gives her the opportunity to become much better known to English Canada, which is a very important element of winning a leadership
0: race. Okay. What are your final thoughts? All of these moves put together, what do you think they tell us about the next phase of the Trudeau government and and what its priorities are?
1: My final thoughts are that we've barely talked about health, which I actually think speaks to how much the government wants to move on from the pandemic. Mm. They did appoint a new health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, who was the Treasury Board president. And he will be tasked with negotiations on health transfers and also, of course, with sort of seeing Canada through what's hopefully the last phase of this pandemic But I think it shows that, yes, they want a capable manager in health, but they want the big movers and the big moves in government to be coming in other files. And then there is this question of the economic file. It's the file that the prime minister has been most criticized on by people like the conservatives. And it's a file where he kept most of the same ministers. So I'm thinking about Carla Qualtron Employment. Christian Freeland, Francois Philippe Champagne, and in industry. So he's kept his economic team in this really critical point of economic recovery, of dealing with the pandemic relatively stable in the face of massive changes almost in every other critical file. So I think there's this push pull in the government about wanting to be able to move on from the pandemic and the fallout from the pandemic. And also recognizing and acknowledging that you can't yet take your eye off that ball either.
0: Marika, thank you so much for making this super interesting. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tamara. So before we go, a quick update on a story we talked about on the podcast last week Alberta's referendum on equalization, where Albertans cast a ballot and a non-binding vote about whether the language on equalization payments should be scrapped from Canada's constitution. Alberta Elections has released the official results, and in the end, 61.7% of voters supported the motion. However, turnout estimates suggest only 39% of eligible voters showed up at the polls last week. What this means for Premier Jason Kenney and his ongoing quest to get the federal government to change its approach to equalization remains to be seen. And that's it for today. I'm Tamara Kandaker. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Kasia Mihailovich. David Crosby edits the show. Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thank you so much to Marika Walsh. You can find her on Twitter at Marika Walsh. If you want to reach us, you can email us at the at If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at Anima underscore TK. If you haven't already, hit that follow button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.